morning, everyone. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, can you hear me? Pretty well, good. Um, well, it's wonderful to see you this morning, both all of you on Zoom and everyone here in three dimensions with each other. And if you could see behind my mask, you'd see I'm smiling. <laughs> I'm happy to see you. And it's a good thing I had this uh, talk together. I might not have gotten out of bed so early this morning. <laughs> so the snow, we have snow here for those of you who are, I know at least one of you are in Zoom land is in California. So, <laughs> so this morning I'm, I'm basing my talk on this um, case, a very short case from the Blue Cliff Records, case number 14. And in it, uh, Yun Man is a, an astute Zen master, and this one of his monks comes to him and says, asks the question. He says, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? And Yun Man's answer is an appropriate response. So it's a very simple yet a profound answer. Um, a lifetime of practice and study is behind it. You may also have been referencing the lifetime of teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha. Um, so this monk's question is one of the nature of our practice. So life happens to us moment by moment. It's up to us to respond appropriately. But what does that mean in different situations? On the, most, on the most basic level, it means we wake up in the morning and we brush our teeth. <laughs> or we eat our lunch and we do our dishes. That's an appropriate response at the simplest of levels. So can we just do that? Just do those just make those appropriate responses without argument or resistance. <laughs> just setting those aside and simply acting. My first teacher, Kagiri Roshi, used to tell us, just get up and brush your teeth and move your cushion. That's it. That was easy for him. The rest of us had to drive to the center. <laughs> <laughs> It was a real, I'll never forget that teaching. You know, just get up, brush your teeth, and then sit down without letting all the, you know, well, maybe I shouldn't, maybe this, maybe that, start to come in. So, on a more complex level, we're having a difficult conversation with someone. When they say something that triggers something in us that's negative, how do we respond? How can we respond with kindness and compassion in all situations involving other people, even when we are feeling anger or strong emotion? That's a good question. Because Dharma asks this of us and defines an appropriate response to other beings as wisdom, kindness, and compassion. You may feel that it's too much to be able to respond appropriately to someone who's displaying even a mild 
form of aggression. And I agree that it can feel really hard. So we might try to just avoid that conversation, right? Or that person. But we can't always do that. How do we avoid our fellow Sangha members? How do we avoid our partners or our children or our parents? We can't. We can't avoid it. Even if we surround ourselves with really enlightened folks like all of you, you know, who are very pleasant to be around, still conflict arises. And the more intimate we get with each other, the more the chances are that eventually a conflict will arise. And I certainly see that more at Hokioji where we're a smaller group. It's easier to, to experience that with a smaller group of folks. But it's also a very committed group of people. So everyone's committed to face-to-face intimate conversation. So um, I've made the practice of kind speech uh, and deep listening central to my life for many years now. Early in my practice, especially after I was ordained um, as a novice priest here, I felt my lack in that area. I saw that I needed to work on that. So I just began to do it. And so Dogen's kind speech, um, right speech from the default path, um, counsel process, and also um, nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg's work that he did, which is probably has been probably the most helpful to me. Um, he um, discovers that um, if we can identify our feelings and our needs, and if we can express those to the other person, that's very helpful. And if we can also identify the way we evaluate and judge other people. And you may not think you do that, but <laughs> actually, just sit down, <laughs> come to a retreat, sit down, <laughs> and watch that unfold, watch that come up. And that can be hard for people at the beginning of practice when they sit down and realize, oh my God, I'm really a judgmental person. At least that was hard for me. And it just took a lot of practice to see that and see that and see that and see that and then let go of that. And it still comes up, as it will. So, um, yeah, it takes overcoming, especially with um, nonviolent and compassionate communication, you have to overcome the first awkwardness of learning to speak in a different way, a way that is not the way we learn in our culture and our very language sort of is very binary. It's very, it splits things apart. And Marshall Rosenberg even went so far as to call, call it violent. 
so it also takes a willingness to stay in relationship with another person. So we don't walk away and we don't turn, uh, turn our back on anybody. And that's really difficult to do. You know, maybe you've done that and you've seen the response in your life to walking away. It's not a, it's a very good practice. Sometimes we have to do it. If, it's, if we're really backed into a corner, if someone is very abusive, we have to turn our back. But in general, that's not a great tactic for communicating with other people, just avoidance or casting them out of our lives. So we have to be willing when, when approaching this work to um, stay in relationship with that person. That's key. So compassion arises from emptiness. This is an important point. The Heart Sutra, which in its abbreviated form is chanted at all Zen centers, including ours. And it sounds like it's simply negating all the early teachings of the Buddha. Um, but it's actually just negating them in order to free us from fixed views and concepts. It's also celebrating wisdom beyond wisdom, that very end part. Um, Bodhisattva, that's like, will be, you know, <laughs> this was the great mantra, the supreme mantra, and yay, will be. So we learn that compassion arises out of that teaching. So at first we think, what is this? No eyes, no air, no nose. Body and mind, this is, this sounds weird. It sounds really weird. But as we do it, we chant it, and we get it in our body, and we, we pair it with our sitting practice, we see that, yeah, compassion and response does arise out of this, out of emptiness. This teaching that leaps beyond all teaching and all concepts. Well, let's take a deeper look at compassion. And I'm going to reference here some of the teachings of my two of my favorite teachers, which is Christina Feldman and Pam Children. So Christina gives us this, that there are two aspects of compassion. Um, there's two Pali words for Adhikampa and Karuna. Karuna, you probably, many of you are probably familiar with. But I wasn't familiar with this with Adhikampa. So Adhikampa means to tremble with it's the empathic dimension of compassion when we feel ourselves trembling for that other person that we're being compassionate with. Um, it resonates with and is touched by the pain of another. That's Adhikampa. Karuna captures the dimension of, of compassion that um, involves um, meeting a situation and then acting in a compassionate way. So there's a dynamic relationship between those two aspects of compassion and um, our engagement in the world. It needs to be attuned to the situation which requires us to be present, 
Be open and listen deeply. Like a little Kitish part hearing the cries of the world. So what if our practice is all about developing the capacity to respond more appropriately to all the dimensions of human experience? We celebrate birth and growth and we feel much joy around it. And today I get to celebrate the second birthday of my family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, we enter deeply into the profound experience of death and learn what it has to teach us and everything in between these two bookends. And these two words are common for women with their different meanings point to the way we can attune ourselves to respond more compassionately through deep listening and presence, embodied presence. So I want to tell a story about chaplaincy training when I first uh, entered into this year of residency, I really felt anxious to learn some skills. You know, I wanted to have tools in my tool belt. And um, I was scared of the idea of walking into a room and where someone is, you know, suffering a health crisis and not having, not knowing what to do with the emphasis on doing <laughs> I think you could probably relate to that. Um, and I think I got, I think I got a third of the way through that year before I realized that most often um, my presence and um, deep listening were probably the most used skills, the most, the most helpful. To, and I think the, uh, my supervisor at the time really appreciated Buddhist chaplains. There were others that came after me. They had at one time three people on staff that were Buddhist. Because we didn't come with, um, for number one, the zeal to proselytize, <laughs> we already came with, you know, missing that piece, which they were happy about. Um, so I tried to meet those situations and the way we learned was to be thrown into the situation basically um, there, there was nothing um, academic about it really there was very little academic just like our lives aren't academic right? they're about the immediacy of now and now and now um, so what we had to do is um, go in and visit with the person, you know, and then we would leave and write up the whole experience. Called it was called verbatim. So we were supposed to word for word write up what happened between us and the patient, and then bring it back to the group and share it with the group and get feedback, which was. Pretty scary at first you know, to get feedback. <laughs> but, you know, we got used to it. So that's what our life is like. You know, we're thrown into situations and we try to respond appropriately and then we reflect on them. 
And Zazen totally helped that. I wanted to take my practice out into the off the Christian and into the world at that. And so I found out that this training was like a year-long sashim. <laughs> but it was not a sashim of science. There was a lot of talking, 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 and processing. But it still felt like it had the intensity of a sashim. And I'm grateful that I had that opportunity. So Christine offers the, this practice to help us attune ourselves, to make us prone to the appropriate response. And it's called Just Like Me. So in situations of stress, we practice seeing the common humanity and shared vulnerability that we all have. When we see someone behaving in a way that we consider unskillful or wrong, we practice the recognition, oh, just like me. That's a recognition of the vulnerability we all share to foolishness, reactivity, anger, and pollution. So it's not about how we feel or what we accomplish, what we get done in this practice. It's about the intentions we commit to and embody in our lives. So sometimes we we call intention vow, as in the four bodhisattva vows that we chant here on Sundays. And sometimes we just say, I'm setting an intention. So it's really important practice to do that. And that's really helpful. It's been helpful to me. Sometimes I do it daily. Just when I wake up, I set an intention for what I'm working on. You know, so today I'm going to be really mindful. And all the things I do, or today I'm, I'm going to be aware and mindful of my feelings. All day long, I'm going to monitor that. There's a lot of ways that we can work with intention. Um, yeah, so compassion is a practice of seeing beyond the automatic reactivity of our conditioning. And a striving to achieve the goal, these impossible vows of the Bodhisattva. <laughs> these vows um, necessitate the development of compassion. Even though we know we can't possibly do it, we still make that vow. So according to Pema, really being present for another, a child, a parent, a spouse, a client, whatever, means not shutting down on that person, which means, first of all, not shutting down on ourselves. Um, this means allowing ourselves to feel what we feel and not pushing it away. It means accepting every aspect of ourselves, even the parts we don't like. And that's pretty daunting, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty daunting, but it's possible. So it requires, doing this requires patience and openness, basically not fixating or holding on to anything. At the beginning of our practice, this might be unexpected and may feel really daunting. We're getting to know ourselves at a deeper level. We might find that we are evaluating and judging others constantly. 
having a teacher or a mentor to talk to at this point is really helpful. Really helpful. So practicing this over and over on the cushion and in our lives develops those two key qualities of wisdom and compassion. Insight into our patterns and the willingness to allow them to change becomes wisdom. Attending to our feelings and needs and to others becomes karuna, compassionate action. Go to study and practice the paramitas and the immeasurables, kind of speech, deep listening, plus our sitting practice of letting go inclines us to the ongoing possibility of the appropriate response that you is talking about here. Our tradition gives us lots of opportunities. And we do need to set our intention or battle often. Delusion is um, inexhaustible. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly self-delusion, and that's where intention and love come in. We have to remind, they remind us um, to um, pay attention to what it is that we want to experience, what we want to have happen. So it's um, often difficult moment by moment to find an um, appropriate response to this world, what's happening in this world. Um, just in the past year and a half, you know, the focus on racial injustice, the um, pandemic, and also the warming climate, you know, we might have a, just a simmering level of anxiety about those things that's in the background. So instead of ignoring them, we can let them in, and if we get overwhelmed, well, then we can be an overwhelmed bodhisattva, you know, at least for a period of time. We can, can we see ourselves as a bodhisattva who's overwhelmed? Um, so in the, in the moment of being overwhelmed, that's our practice. Just being there with that. I think if we can see ourselves as overwhelmed bodhisattvas, we might not stay in that place so long. We might be able to join up with other bodhisattvas and come up with a response, some kind of appropriate response to the situation that's so distressing for us. So practices and intentions will be there when we're not lost and overwhelmed anymore. And our path in training to be fully ourselves and allowing others to be fully themselves. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. From that fullness of being ourselves and letting others be themselves, an appropriate response can emerge. When we're fully ourselves, we see that our lives are fragile and that we can be tender with our fragile lives. 
Our acceptance of this can lead the way to an appropriate response. When we meet things this way, we can be, we can respond to things just as they are. And we're generous with our lives. We're also patient, mindful, gentle, and open. Even at the very beginning of our practice, when we open things to things as they are, um, as they appear, we are open to myriad possibilities. So I wonder if you'd be willing to do a guided meditation with me on compassion for yourself. Because where we have to start always with ourselves. So settling down, closing the eyes, if that's comfortable for you, or casting them down. Be mindful of your body, mind, and emotions of this time. Sense what is well in you. Places in your body that are at ease, the sounds that are registering, the movement of the breath. Welcome and appreciate all that is well. Now sense what may be difficult or painful in this moment. Areas of your body that feel distressed. Listening into the difficult thoughts or feelings that may be present. Maybe sadness, maybe anxiety, or just simple restlessness, encircling thoughts. Notice how they register in the body. Explore what it's like to touch the painful or difficult with compassion. Sense what it is to allow your heart to tremble but not be broken in the face of your own difficult thoughts and feelings. Falling pain is pain, sadness as sadness. Explore what it is to plant the seeds of compassion in the center of pain or difficulty. May I find healing. May I find peace in this moment. And rest in care and compassion. The words aren't important, they're just a way of remembering the possibility of embracing life as it is and touching our bodies and minds with compassion. And next, we widen the circle to include all whom we know and love. May you find healing. 
May you find peace in this moment. May you rest in care and compassion. We don't need to know the story of the other person to know that like us, each person longs for peace and the end of suffering. We can now extend this out to all the people we don't know. May you find healing. May you find peace in this moment. May you rest in care and compassion. We explore the ways we can bring compassionate awareness to the many ways we interact with the world. We see suffering and learn to not turn away. We do all that we can to help and heal. We learn that we can tremble in empathy at another's pain and yet still be courageous. Compassion brings dignity to our lives and enables us to be a conscious participant in healing the world. May I find healing. May I find peace in this moment. May I rest in care and compassion. Now, coming back, thank you for participating in that guided meditation. And um, I'd like to just end today with this um, with reading um, an excerpt from Tension of Anderson's book on the Yes. Um, and it starts with a poem by Dolan's Chinese teacher, Chen Tong Ruji, called The Windmill. The whole body is a mouth hanging in emptiness, not caring which way the wind blows, east, west, north, or south. All day long it sings Prajna Paramita for all beings. Ting tong, ting tong. And this is what Red has to say about this. The wind bell is unconcerned with which direction the wind blows or how gently or strongly it's blowing. Like a Buddha, it responds appropriately to the conditions at hand. In the process of responding without picking and choosing, its chimes may touch each other and make sound. Or the chimes may not touch and therefore won't make sound. The windmill has no preferences. It is beyond thinking. It has no fixed position. And because of that, it always responds appropriately to the given situation. It's like a spontaneously acting Zen master, responding appropriately and always singing the songs 
of the wisdom of the gentle Buddhas. So that's what I have to share today about appropriate response.